Paleo Runner Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'd like to recommend Andre Agassi's autobiography, Open. It's a fascinating look at Andre's life, what it took for him to make it to the top, and the intense mental focus that it takes to be a top-level athlete. One of the great perks about signing up for Audible is that if you don't like the book you're listening to, you can actually return it for a different one. Go to paleorunner.com org and click on audible at the top of the page paleo runner podcast is a podcast devoted to finding better ways to live run train and eat i'm your host aaron olson you can find more information by going to paleorunner.org you'll find me on facebook.com slash run paleo and on twitter at run paleo if you enjoy the show please go to itunes and leave a review search for paleo runner in itunes and click ratings and reviews you can email feedback to aaron at paleorunner.org my guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University and blogger for EconLog. Brian's latest book is called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Why Being a Great Parent is Less Work and More Fun Than You Think. Brian, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for being part of the show. Glad to be here. So prior to reading your book, I was I don't have any kids now, but I was very apprehensive about ever having kids. I'm not the kind of person who does well with lack of sleep, and I was always afraid that I would somehow screw something up. So give me the basic premises that underlie your arguments for the book. Why is parenting more fun than we think? The basic premise uh, begins with research on why people turn out the way that they do. Uh, of course, people have been arguing about nature versus nurture for thousands of years. Uh, but over the last 50 years, there's been an enormous amount of research on twins and, our, and on kids who are adopted that has allowed us to make a huge amount of progress. Uh, the main result of this research is that the long-run effects of parenting are much smaller than what most people imagine. Uh, you can see this most clearly in adoption research. Uh, the family that adopts you does not have much long-run effect on the kind of adult that you become. Uh, so you know, many people look at this and get depressed, but I look at it as an opportunity, and I say, well, this means that you can stop worrying so much about long-run effects of uh, how, you, how your parenting is going to change your child, and instead focus on the journey, focus on enjoying your time together rather than treating your child like a science project. Uh, so that's, that's, that's really where, where, I, where I seg in from the research. People have been arguing about this kind of thing for years and years. What Can you go into a little bit about more of the evidence, the, those twin and adoption studies that you found so compelling? All right. So the simplest evidence just comes from regular kids who are adopted. Not twins who are adopted, just, right, just regular kids who are adopted. Uh, there have been a number of studies that have taken a look at how kids that are adopted by different kinds of families turn out. And the result is very consistent. It doesn't seem to matter very much what kind of family you're adopted by in terms of the adult outcomes that most parents are working for. Uh, so, for example, we see very little effect of the family that adopts you on your adult income. Uh, you mm -hmm. might think the kids adopted by rich families would grow up to make a lot more money than kids adopted by poorer families. Uh, but there's been, there's uh, it was a major study of Korean war orphans that got adopted by American families in the 50s and 60s that found no effect at all. Uh, people often think that upbringing has a large effect on your intelligence. Uh, so again, there have been adoption studies where they've taken a look at the IQs of the adopting families, the IQs of the adoptees, and there they find that by adulthood, there's no measurable effect of the IQ of your adopting family on your adult IQ. Uh, for something like educational success, uh, there we see a slight effect, but it is quite small. So in that uh, Korean adoption study, uh, the finding was that if you got adopted by a family where the mom had one extra year of education, 
that on average you finish five more weeks. Hmm. So basically, it would, it, that amounts to your mom needs to have 10 extra years to boost your expected number of years of education by a single year, uh, which is not nothing. It's a big study. You can say it's a genuine effect, but it's very slight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so really, really in the research, the most meaningful effect of upbringing that you see is on what I call appreciation, so how your kids feel about you, how they remember you. Uh, this is what seems to actually uh, actually be you know, a, a noticeable effect. It, it is very it's very long lasting, uh, but it's also a quite different one from what a lot of modern parents think about. So, I mean, I often think about uh, Tiger Mom Amy Chua, who uh, we became famous a few months before my book came out. Uh, she spent in her you know so you know, you know her book is, is autobiographical. She spent many years very harshly raising her kids in order to turn them into successes when they're adults. What the research tells us is that. If they succeed, they probably would have succeeded anyway, even without her emotional abuse. <laughs> and at the same time, she probably has messed up something that she really could have affected, which is the quality of the relationship. The kids are going to have a Darth Vader ringtone on their cell phones for when mom calls. Yeah. You know, some of that seems a little bit counterintuitive. You mentioned the effect on education that parents mm-hmm. have. Suppose mm-hmm. a parent is pushing their child to study hard for the SATs, mm-hmm. and that that pushes them to get into a, get a higher score and get into a better college. Are you saying that the parents pushing them to get a, to study isn't having much of an effect? Uh, that is the best that we can see. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's an old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the, the you know, so one possibility is the pushing doesn't actually work. Uh, you know, so which uh, you, if you are a parent, uh, it's pretty clear the pushing off, often doesn't work. You know, and another and then another possibility is just that it works, but it doesn't last very long. So mm-hmm. maybe you, you manage to push your kid into you know, you know getting better SAT scores, but if you aren't leaning over the kid's shoulder for the rest of his life. Then he's not really going to be able to capitalize on on that extra advantage. Okay. So right. and of course the other thing is remember how you you know, to really say so, you know there's a lot of work on just changing SAT scores in general. Uh, to change them much it requires an enormous amount of work. So maybe the story is very few parents are willing to put in the hundreds of hours of nagging and bullying that would be required to make a visible difference. Okay. How about things like character? Mm-hmm. Build, building a strong character about how children treat other children or treat uh, adults. Is that something that mm-hmm. that there's not a big effect from parenting either? Well, so it's important to remember that you, you actually combine two very different things. So how your children treat other children versus how your children behave when they're adults. One of the main findings out of this research is that the short-run effect of parenting is much larger than the long-run effect. So I already mentioned that if you're adopted by a high-EQ family when you're a young child, you will test better. The catch is that by the time you're 16 or 20, that effect will go away. Mm. We see the same thing for, for many other traits, and, uh, and this includes things, things like character. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, we, we do see that the way that you're raised has some effect upon your behavior and how you treat people. Uh, for example, for... The, for, you know, for bad behavior of young children, uh, there is a modest effect of the way that you're raised on that. However, if you take a look at adult criminality, for example, there we see little or no effect of how you're raised on your behavior. So what it looks like, uh, there are some, some people who, if you lean on them right at that moment, that will change their behavior. But at the same time, if they are inclined to be a violent criminal, the fact that you leaned on them when they were five is not going to change their behavior when, they are, when they're 20 years old. Uh, you know, the analogy that I like is we should really think about kids as being like flexible plastic. Mm. Uh, it does respond to pressure, but when you release the pressure, it pops back to the shape that it would have had otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, which again is, is also, I think, how to make these results more intuitive. It's not, the results are not saying that you cannot change the behavior of a child an hour from now. Uh, you clearly can. 
What they're saying is that changing your child's behavior an hour from now is not going to change what he's doing 10 years from now. Okay. And, you know, and if you are a parent, this is all pretty obvious. You, know, you go and punish a child for bad behavior, he improves for a while. A month later, unless you keep riding him, he's probably going to revert back to his normal behavior. So as a parent yourself, how do you find disciplining your children has changed since you've done the research on the lasting effects that it might not have? Yeah, so fortunately, all my kids are well-behaved. So, <laughs> so it, it, it hasn't been too pressing of an issue, uh, but... Uh, one of the main things that I had noticed noticed from practice, and then I found research that was consistent with it, is that you know, m- mild but very consistent punishment is a very effective way to make your children treat you better at the moment. So instead of focusing on turning your child into a decent adult, you know, very few kids grow up to hit people when they're adults. Uh, you should focus on getting them to not hit people right here, right now, including you. Mm. Uh, I, I know parents who actually let their kids punch and kick them. I've seen it ha- seen it happening. It's appalling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, very you know, mild but consistent punishments, things like putting a child in the naughty corner every time he misbehaves. Uh, this stuff, not only have I noticed that it works, but there's actually research showing it works even for kids who have very bad behavior. The main problem just seems to be that parents get lazy. So they start putting their child in the naughty corner for bad behavior. He improves, and then they stop doing it, and then he goes back to the way that he otherwise would be. So, you know, I, I will say, you know, the research has steeled me in my view that, you know, while the you know, punishment should be mild but relentless, right, with no exceptions, enforced very consistently, uh, and, 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 you know, I, and I'm not thinking this so much as doing it for their benefit, it's just for the benefit of the people ra- around them. Uh, you know, it's not fair that the people around the child should have to endure the child's emotional abuse because, you know, you know, you know for the, in, in the tw- until he's 20 when he finally realizes that you shouldn't be screaming at people all the time. So one of the things you talk about in in the book is how people have been having less and less kids. What is mm-hmm. what are some of the reasons for that? Um, so you know, one thing to keep in mind is so you know, it's you know overall uh, around the world this is true. In the U.S. it's actually much more complicated. In the U.S. family size actually bottomed out in the 70s and has since rebounded, and then may have gone down a bit since then. Uh, but you know the U.S. is actually a very unusual country because most rich countries have, and in fact most countries, regardless of their income, have seen family size go way down. Uh, so, you know, I think there, you know, there, there are a bunch of factors going on, but the one that I focus on is that parents have made raising kids so unpleasant. They've turned it into such a chore that the idea of having kids is scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, right before I wrote, I, the, the book came out, there was an op-ed by a mom on the theme of soccer as contraception. Hmm. And basically, she and her husband had two kids already. The kids were both enrolled in soccer. They were saying, we're exhausted. We're going to all their games, all their practices. They started talking about having a third child. And they said, well, I mean, that sounds good. But third child means a third set of soccer practices, third set of soccer <laughs> games. Oh, I don't feel like doing it. And then briefly considered, well, maybe the kid wouldn't have to go to soccer. And, oh, no, no, that's crazy. Every kid has to go to soccer. Otherwise, God knows what would become of his character. And you know, really what I'm saying is that conclusion's wrong. And you can reverse it and should reverse it. So if the feeling that you must do a ton of painful chores to be a decent parent leads you to want to have a small number of children, then the realization that you don't have to do this stuff to be a decent parent should make you more open to the possibility of having more kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when I wrote the book, I had three, now I've got four. Uh, so yeah, I, think, I think that's a big part of it. I took an environmental studies mm-hmm. course in college, and they talked about how you shouldn't have a lot of kids, especially in the U.S., because we're causing problems with overpopulation and destroying the environment. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why we should have small families. What is your take on that? Um, yeah, so my take on that is that uh, the, you know, the, the environmentalist view that more kids are, are, are a bad thing for the, for the world First of all, it's a, it's a very narrow view. It's only it only focuses on negatives when there are many positives. 
And secondly, and as economists, I'll say that there are just cheaper, cheaper and more humane ways to solve environmental problems than keeping people from existing. Uh, so, you know, you know, first point, uh, you know, people focus so much on the ways the world becomes worse when another person's born, but economists have noted a whole bunch of ways that the world gets better. Uh, so probably the biggest one is this. Uh, you know, the main difference between the world of today and the world of 200 years ago is ideas. The main reason why we live so much better than people did 200 years ago is that we know so much more than people used to know. Now, once you take this idea seriously, and this is you know, a very standard result in, uh, you know, in the study of economic growth, it's, it's really knowledge that has made, the, made all the difference between the world of the past and the world of today. Uh, well, where does, where does knowledge come from? Um, you know, again, the, the, the trivial answer is from people. But the less trivial answer is hmm, not just from people, but from having a lot of people. Right? Mm-hmm. So if, I, if every idea has to come from a person, then if there are more people around, you'd expect there to be more ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's been you know, some very, very good research showing this is actually true. Just on a global level, uh, almost all new ideas throughout history have come from areas with large connected populations. So basically, Eurasia is the source of, mo- of, most, ide- of most ideas because you have a, lo- a lot of people who can easily communicate with each other. On the other hand, if you want to see where people have, are extremely backward, they live extremely primitive lives, uh, you can look at the most isolated parts of the world. So, for example, Tasmania. Until Europeans showed up, it, uh, it was cut off from the mainland. The Tasmanians did not even have boats. You know, how yeah. did Tasmanians get to an island without boats? Uh, the answer is they walked there when sea levels were lower. Sea levels rose and they were trapped. So a couple thousand people living there, there they, are, they're, they were incredibly backward. Now, they didn't have boats. They didn't have fishing hooks. Uh, you know, and and you know, it makes a lot of sense to realize there's only a few thousand people there. Uh, the odds that they're going to get someone who's going to come up with a new idea and will spread is very slim. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have a larger population, your prospects for this get a lot uh, become, become much greater. Uh, you know, it's especially easy to see this connection between ideas and population and culture. So think about the number of great books and movies in English. Now think about the number of great books and movies in Albanian. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, yeah, so, now you may say, well, I don't know anything about Albania, but you have a right. pretty good sense that there's hardly anything being done there. And a big part of the reason is there's hardly any Albanians. So they don't have enough people to sustain a lot, a lot of great new ideas. And then on top of that, of course, an Albanian writer doesn't, or a movie, write, movie maker just doesn't have a very big audience. So even if you do have an idea, uh, there aren't a lot of people to sell it to. Uh, in, the, in the book, I bring up this old show, Gilligan's Island, where you got seven people on an island. you got one professor, so he comes up with a bunch of, in, a bunch of inventions. But think about this. Suppose that the professor has an idea that's worth a dollar per person, but it's going to take him a year to a year to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, you know, like he would be spending if he if he made it, it would take him a whole year to make seven dollars. Right. Be better off picking coconuts. But if that professor were able to get to the mainland, that idea would be worth seven billion dollars. Right. right. So this so this this affected population on innovation, creativity, economic growth is you know, very well established. It's a huge effect, and it's one that generally gets ignored. When I heard you hear you talk about that uh, Gilligan's Island story, it's not only the benefit that the professor gets to himself by making money, but the benefit that he gives to society yeah, by coming up with those great ideas. Of course. Yeah, so, I mean, if every person valued it by a dollar the most, it would be $7, and then if he was actually trying to market it, uh, he might not even get that. People might bargain him down, so mm-hmm. the gain society would actually be greater. Uh, now, on the you know, harm to the environment... I uh, don't deny there there are a number of ways that greater population makes the environment worse, uh, but there are many ways of handling this. So one of them is there's a person let him you know it'd be it's bad that he exists. Another way is what what you know, normal economists say, which is why don't we just put a tax on pollution? Tell you know, tell me exactly what it is that people are doing that is that is that is making the planet worse, and we'll put a tax on that. That we can solve the problem that way. 
Um, you know, this may seem like pie in the sky, but you know, world population and the U.S. population is way larger than it was 40 years ago. And yet, you know, like most first world countries are you know, have much cleaner air, much cleaner water. So we, clearly it's possible to clean the world up without, without, you know, in the face of rising population. And economist's point is really we've been doing it in an un- unnecessarily expensive way. You know, very standard result among environmental economists is that if you use pollution taxes to reduce pollution instead of just passing laws telling everybody how they have to reduce pollution, you can cut the cost in about by about 50%. Mm. So, you know, when, you, when you impose a tax, this gives people reasons to think about cheaper ways to, to cut back pollution, gives them reasons to say, well, do I really need to actually do this? Whereas we just pass a law saying every car has to have a certain anti-pollution device that does not encourage... The same le- the same level of thoughtfulness about the best way to clean clean things up. So you know, you know, you know to me, trying to prevent someone's existence because you're going to pollute is just you, you know you, is such overkill. It's using a sword to kill a mosquito. <laughs> there is a much more nar- narrowly tailored solution, which we you know, we already know about it. It already wor- we already know that it works. So why try to prevent a person's existence when you could just do this? Right. And that generation of ideas that you get from having higher population, there might be, you know, yes. new Einsteins that come about. As, there as there a, might be a so. new person who's going to figure out how to solve global warming or redu- reduce air pollution or come up with a, clean, with a cleaner battery or whatever. Now, um, you know, when I made this argument, people say, well, there's, another ch- there's also a greater chance there'll be another Hitler. Uh, well, that's, that's true in a sense. Yeah, so who's the Tasmanian Hitler? I don't know who he is. Main thing I would say is, you know, look around at the civilization that we have. I mean, clearly the fact that the civilization even exists shows that the average person makes things better, not worse. Mm-hmm. If the average person was Hitler, we would just be dead. Right. So, you know, like, you know, so there are some bad people and you have a larger population. Yeah, you've got a larger chance of having a really bad person. But... On average, it sure looks like the typical person is someone who makes the world better, not worse. So, uh, you know, du- you know, doubling the population, it will double the number of good people, double the number of bad people. But those good people will give us more good than the bad people give us bad. You know, oh, oh go ahead. <laughs> probably, I said probably. Oh. <laughs> uh, there's no right. guarantees here. <laughs> <laughs> Some people might be very skeptical of this idea that parenting doesn't matter as much as we th- we previously thought. But I've been reading Jared Diamond's latest book called The World Until Yesterday, and he looks at a lot of primitive cultures, mm-hmm. and they kind of take this hands-off approach to parenting, where they view their kids as a more autonomous individual and have you looked at primitive societies or other cultures and how they parent let's see i'll say i mean i'm not that much Mm -hmm. Uh, the main reason is in terms of research there's almost none of it done on primitive societies or even third world societies so in the book i try to limit myself to what i can really say with confidence and to say look within the kinds of countries where these studies have been done which are also the kinds of countries where most readers of the books are going to be Within that range, we don't see much effective parenting. What would be the effect of being raised in a you know in third world poverty or a very primitive society? That might be a lot larger. It's, mm. it's, it's hard. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it, uh, it may very well be this is true. I mean, you know, certainly you know if you're raised in a very primitive society, then you're unlikely to learn to read and write. So right. there's 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 some effect there. Although you know, the interesting thing is that if your parents are illiterate, but you're you're in a society where other people are literate, then that probably isn't going to make much difference. Uh, you know, one of the you know, original interesting observations that got me thinking about this in Judith Harris, Judith Harris's book, The Nurture Assumption, mm-hmm. she points out that children of immigrants who don't even speak English or you know or speak with a very thick accent, as long as they as they come to their to their home to, to their new country before the age of ten or twelve. 
they almost invariably learn to speak the learn to speak the the, uh, the language of the new country with no accent whatsoever, with a native accent. Mm-hmm. So you can be around people who either don't speak English at all or speak it with a very thick accent. And yet, as long as you grow up in a society where other people are speaking it normally, uh, your parents do not mess up your your language ability. You pick it up from your peers, and you ignore you know the grammatical and pronunciation errors that your parents make. Part of your book's title is how parenting can be more fun than we think. What's some advice to our listeners about how to make parenting more fun and what what actually matters? Well, I mean, for me, you know, of course, you know, starting off with no, you know, don't make their don't make your kids spend their so-called recreation time doing things that they don't enjoy. Uh, so, you know, if your kid doesn't like soccer, don't make him do soccer. If he doesn't want to do art, don't, you know, don't make him, you know, don't push him into an, an extracurricular art class. So, I mean, so part of it is just stop doing things that make people unhappy. But then, you know, once you've done that obvious thing, you know, my advice is, you know, find things you can do with your kids that you really enjoy doing together. Uh, so for like me and my older kids, we really enjoy playing games together. So we spend a lot of time doing games. I don't think I'm preparing them for their future lives. I think mm-hmm. we're just, ha- you know, I think we're just having fun. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, the way that I think about it is you know, parents put so much of their emotional energy into riding their kids for their own good. And if you could just realize, you know, that effort that you're putting in is not really paying off, uh, you have a lot of energy left over to do things that actually count. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I see you know, parents who are, who are exhausted, I don't know, I don't, I'm too tired to go and play a game with my kids. Well, maybe if you hadn't spent the, the earlier part of the day driving them an hour to a soccer game that you didn't want to see and maybe he didn't even want to see, and then staying there the game and being bored in the hot sun and then getting stuck in traffic another 90 minutes home, maybe if you'd skip that part, then you would have energy to do something something fun with your kids at the end of the day. Instead, you've just sort of you've wasted each other's time or yeah. worse. Well, Brian, it's been a very interesting conversation. I really enjoyed your book, and thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Aaron. Uh, best of luck to you. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. You can also find me on facebook.com slash runpaleo and on Twitter at runpaleo. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can email feedback to Aaron at paleorunner.org.